Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. Normally, when we do these shows, even in the most serious of topics, uh, my co-host Amy Stevens and I like to start this show out with a little bit of lightness and frivolity. Um, Today, I don't feel like that's what I want to do. This week, we are going to be airing a conversation that Amy and I had with Robin Wilt back in April. Robin was one of the people that we decided to interview about activism in the time of a pandemic for a series that we were going to call Speaking Out While Staying In. Well, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey has made this discussion more or less moot. People are in the streets protesting and putting themselves at risk, not only from the police, but from virus in order for their voices to be heard. And that's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But it is not the only way that we can give voice to the voiceless and speak truth to power and take action steps. So in that light, we decided that we were going to air this interview with Robin Wilt, even though much of what we're talking about doesn't really work anymore. And it's hard to believe that our lives have changed this rapidly yet again in just a couple of months. So here, without any goofiness or pleas for support, is our interview with Robin Wilt. The daughter of Guyanese immigrants, a Brighton Town Board member, a mother of three boys, and a two-time Bernie delegate, Robin Wilt is a decades-long activist and organizer committed to fighting for progressive values. As an activist, she has rallied against the Iraq War, organized for single-payer health care since 2009, and led efforts to pass legislation for racially equitable and environmental just policies that center marginalized communities. Robin, thank you for spending some time with us today on Transformation Thursday. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So a quick question, what got you started in activism? You know, it was one of those things, what got me off the couch was that I had three young boys. Uh, At the time, my oldest was five or six years old. And, um, It was the era of George W. Bush. And we were embroiled in this war. He had uh, articulated the doctrine of preemptive strike. My brother actually graduated in that class where George W. Bush articulated that doctrine and we were consumed with the Iraq war. Um, And, you know, there was no credible education exit strategy from the war. Um, we had uh, had totally changed our way, the way that we enter war um, in, in that we did not have a declaration from Congress. Um, and to me, that really revealed the perils that of our democracy. Um, the the, and so I got involved with a local activist group. Actually, they call themselves a support group for activists. Um, they were a local moveon.org group uh, called Progressives in Action. Mm. And they would engage in all types of uh, civic actions in order to fight for the policies that they thought we needed to, in order to be people-centered as opposed to 
profit driven. And so that's how I got my start. Very quickly, one of the um, issues that rose in prominence in my mind uh, was the lack of access to healthcare. At the time, um, the SCHIP, the Child Health Insurance Program, the State Child Health Insurance Program was under threat. And uh, this was a wildly popular bipartisan effort um, that had worked for so many years, but all of a sudden we were talking about not funding healthcare for children. And um, that's when I said, you know, enough is enough. What we need is Medicare for all and everybody should be covered regardless of your financial ability. And um, so that's how I got started. <laughs> you know, Robin, in that, in that explanation, excuse me, my voice is kind of going on me today. But, you know, you mentioned in there, and since you are running for Congress here in our district, you know, both Penny and I live in your district that you're running for, you know, but you said something about declaration of war, and there's this structure with the War Powers Act that came about in the 1960s, and then also the the rise of use of executive authority. Um, There's a structural imbalance, I think, within our checks and balances system, and, you know, is there a way for Congress you know, to get that back and to become a better check on the executive, because, you know, it's all fine. I think sometimes when your party is in power, but then it's, then everybody's screaming when the other party's in power. So how do we get back to a legitimate checks and balances within our system? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that um, we need to, well, uh, you know, Congress has taken some steps to rescind um, the War Powers Act from the executive branch, and that's a good thing. Um, But some of the surveillance um, uh, provisions are still still available to the executive branch, and we really need to look at that. Um, I, I think that Well, one of the things that really struck me is that now I have a son who's at West Point. And at West Point, they have this hall. It's a memorial to all of the fallen West Point graduates. It's called Cullum Hall. And um, it lists all of the fallen graduates for each of the engagements that the U.S. has been embroiled in since the Revolutionary War. So, um, you you know, each engagement, you know, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the um, Spanish-American War, the Civil War, all of these engagements lasted about three to five years, and then they end. And then you get to the Global War on Terror, and it's 2003 Dash. We're still in this conflict. So my son, he was uh, two on 9-11. And I remember very distinctly going to preschool and our preschool instructor saying, you know, let this be a safe haven for our children. Let's not talk about what's going on in the greater world. Let's not talk about um, this horrible act of terrorism that has just been committed. Let the kids play. And it was good for the adults and the children. Um, But now we have our first class entering West Point that was not even alive on 9-11. 
Wow. And, you know, my, uh, my sons, um, they have a, a class slogan um, for each class in a, in a banner. And my son's class slogan is um, 2021 until the battle is won. And I see no way to win this war. There's no strategic way to win this war. Yeah, the, when, 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 the, when the target is a concept, how do you know when you've won? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, you, you know, and, and the banner harkens to the Twin Towers. And, and, and so um, I, I think we really have to look at, at the fact that every single executive since we have um, allowed the executive to engage in these actions, these military actions, has used that authority. And so I, I think um, it's time that we return to an age when we did not have the executive branch taking us into these types of conflicts. And that's kind of what uh, fuels your activism? That's one of the things, you know, Endless War is definitely one of the um, platform pieces that, that I would like to address. Um, I, I would like Medicare for all. I don't think that this is an outrageous concept <laughs> that we should be able to have access to health care regardless of our ability to pay. This actually results in deaths every year. 45,000 people die as a result of lack of access to healthcare. And to me, that's unforgivable in the most wealthy society in the history of the world. Um, I also think that housing is a human right. Um, I think that we often talk about healthcare, but we don't talk, at it, talk about it in terms of the predeterminants for health. And definitely housing is one of those predeterminants for health. Housing is a predeterminant for health. Access to good nutrition is a predeterminant for health. And if we have this type of rampant wealth inequality, where we have our frontline communities do not have access to housing, do not have access to healthcare, do not have access to uh, nutritious food, are in, in food deserts, we are not going to prosper as a society. Uh, we are only as strong as the most vulnerable among us. And I think that's what COVID-19 has yeah. most amply demonstrated for us. Yeah, I, yeah, I wanted to circle this back into the, the topic, which of course is activism, uh, or as I'm calling it because I like clever titles, you know, speaking <laughs> out while staying in. <laughs> All right. And so um, when, as you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about the question that I asked before, is this is this what your your main Bible? It's like it, it reminds me of I don't know if you ever saw the movie Rebel Without a Cause with Marlon Brando. Yes. <laughs> early early on in the film, he's just gotten into this town on his motorcycle, and somebody says, "What are you rebelling against?" And he says, "What have you got?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 it's like that, you know. It's like Lyndon Johnson used to get on his airplane when he's a president of the United States and Air Force One, and he'd say, "Go anyplace. We got problems all over." How do you how do you as an activist? you know, take this intersexual layer upon layer of systematic injustice and, and focus. And how do you do that now when we are all cloistered and, and separate from each other? It used to be that a mass protest was the way to 
let people know these things and go out on the streets and, 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 and rally. And these things are great for politics. These things are great for showing strength. How do you show strength when we all have to sit apart from each other? What yeah. have you found out? Well, this, this is really interesting because, you know, there's the, the phrase that the revolution will not be televised. Well, it is televised these days. <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, um, and, and, and socialized. Yes. Yeah. Um, we have taken to Zoom. We, we still have the power of the pen and there are a lot of petition campaigns. Um, I, I think that COVID-19 has created an opportunity in a, a lot of ways in order to uh, address some of the issues that have been exposed by the virus, some of the um, economic and social inequities that we need to right. And I think that activism has always focused on those marginalized communities. And uh, Ayanna Presley has a saying that those who are closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And I think that as we center those communities, which are the communities most in need during this crisis, um, we are learning what our system needs, what, what gaps we have in our social networks. And so um, there has been a lot of Zoom. <laughs> there have been a lot of Zoom meetings um, in order to get us together and really um, plot the course in highlighting these inequities and how we fix them within our system because i do think this presents an opportunity for us to come out better than we were stronger than we were but we have to rise to that occasion we need leadership that is going to rise to that occasion and so um i am a member of a group um local progress new york this is a caucus if you will of uh, elected officials on the local and state level who are advocating for the same types of policies, same platform positions that I've been advocating for for the last decade and a half. And um, we get on a call and we talk about COVID-19 response. We, we talk about best practices. We talk about the different things that people are trying in, in their respective communities in order to house the homeless, in order to make sure that our response to this pandemic is equitable. Um, and, and it has been the source of some really good ideas. Okay, so on, on that, as we were talking before we actually started this about uh, the, the, the different ways that we can, can do these things, we we're talking about the school district because you were just at a town hall meeting with uh, RCSD Commissioner Natalie Shepard and we did it over Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're the two questions that I now have about this, number one is, as we were talking about it, um, there is an inequality. There's in, in broadband access between uh, different places. And oftentimes, the most marginalized people are the ones who have the least access to uh, high-speed broadband to, to do this. And the second thing that I'm thinking about is, like, we're recording this on Zoom. Zoom has a very checkered past. Yes. with digital security and data mining. Uh, it, so it's not just the government that you have to fight against. It's actually, we have to be watchdogs of the very technology that we're using to stay connected and to stay active. How do we, how, what, what is your takeaway on that problem? Yeah, um, I, I think one of the things that we've learned as well is that um, 
our community centers have become havens for um, not only uh, distribution of food, um, but schools are still distributing food. They are still um, engaged in uh, a communal response to the, this virus. And, and um, we, but of course, you point out the inequities. We, we um, are going to, because our system is what it is, we are going to have people who are, are going to come out of this further behind unless we are intentional about our approach to responding to the virus. And um, that's why we don't think that rent deferment is enough. We think that we need to cancel the rent. Um, right. and, and, and I want to talk about this because um, I was on that conference call that I, I talked about with the other elected officials, um, uh, other progressive elected officials across the country. We had over 130 people on the call. Wow. And um, they talked about the fact that, you know, we're talking about um, mortgage deferment about rent cancellation and why is that? And I, I, I want to say that, first of all, I, I uh, also support mortgage cancellation for this time period, but I want to talk about why these are different. Um, mortgage, the deferment actually ends up on the end of your payment. The, the, move, the payment is moved from, the, from currently owed to being owed sometime in the future. And many people have, you know, 15 year, 30 year mortgages. So we're talking about deferring this payment for 15, 30 years. Hmm. And uh, when we're talking about rent deferral, we're talking about a matter of months. So a mortgage is being deferred so far down the road that it's not even likely to be the same tenant who is who's shouldering this burden of rent uh, to, to support the mortgage. So, um, so, so when we talk about deferring rent and deferring mortgage, they're not tantamount, they're not equal. And so those are the types of things that we really have to look at critically during this crisis. And I would say the same for as we um, transition to learning at home. Um, you know, not all of us have an environment that is conducive to learning. And I question the, the wisdom of trying to award grades, trying to, um, you know, function as though we all have access to the same tools when we are at home. And, and so uh, again, I think a lot of this is looking critically at our policy right now and really centering those who are most in need, the most vulnerable in our community. And that that's, brings up a lot of good points, but and but how do we take this moment in time where we say we have so many Americans that are unemployed, losing health insurance, or we we notice these inequalities within our system? But how do we take that activism and sustain it into the future? I think I think a lot of most Americans are going to get back to some sense of normalcy, and I think they're going to forget this period of time 
not an amnesia, but they're just going to get back to their lives and say, well, I don't have time to be an activist. I don't have time to get out to that protest. So how do we make this a sustainable movement into the future? Well, I, I think, uh, again, just the, the, the sheer uh, breadth of the people affected, um, we have, I think it's 50 million, 60 million people who have applied for unemployment at this point. The, what better time but now than to talk about a UBI well, and why we need a UBI? Well, not only UBI, but also medical insurance for all. I mean, right, this, exactly. this is, and this is such a, I mean, you have to have a job to get health insurance. It is the stupidest system in the industrialized world. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we talk about a UBI, you talk about Medicare for all, Medicare for all in particular, because there actually is a bill before Congress right now to implement, implement Medicare for all during the pandemic. And I am pushing hard for that bill because I think that once we go there, we will not want to go back. I, I think that um, our economy is a lot less nimble because of the inefficiencies like uh, healthcare that is tied to your employment. Yeah, and I think it keeps entrepreneurship down too, because you know, you, how many times do you hear about a situation where, you know, somebody who has this great idea for a business is the big money earner in the family, but they don't want to give up that you know high five-figure job to take that chance because health insurance, four hundred one k, everything else is tied to the job. Right. It's like, right. and so I think big business they realize the golden handcuffs they have. Yes. And I don't think it's in their best interest to have. A Medicare for all solution, but this situation shows like, you know, it's so important to be able, my, my kids have been on child health plus since we moved to New York in 2008, nine, and I can't imagine my life without it for right. them because of the situation, medical situations they have. And so to, to lose that and not have that available for your family in this time would be such a shame. So I hope, I hope you're right. I hope people remember that how important it is to move forward from here so i'm just rambling now so i'm gonna <laughs> well my question for you robin it's kind of a, of a wrap-up question because we've used a lot of your time here and i'd like to get, let you get on with your day what is to you would be the best possible outcome of the this pandemic i mean there's i always believe there's a gift in everything uh from an activist viewpoint from a from a person who is fighting for the marginalized, trying to give voice to the voiceless, what do you think would be the best possible outcome? Uh, blue sky, six months, a year from now, what would you like to see? Well, I, I think that this pandemic has really highlighted our interconnectedness um, and highlighted the fact, like I said, that we are only as strong as the most vulnerable among us. So I, I think this pandemic this situation has actually highlighted what we need in order to be stronger as a community, regardless of your social stature now. Um, and and uh, I, I think that the things that we are talking about, they don't look so crazy in practice. They don't look so radical in practice anymore. Um, it, because when you have 16 million people on the unemployment rolls, we need to make sure that everybody has health care, especially in the middle of a health crisis. So um, I, I think that 
people are actually realizing the need for some of this stuff that they call pie in the sky that we we didn't have the money to pay for it. I, I thought that one of the most interesting things was that as this pandemic ramped up, we gave a $1.5 trillion bailout for Wall Street. And it has been a fight to get any sort of similar um, consideration for the American public. Um, you know, right away, one of the uh, measures that we're talking about is making sure that the public is able to borrow, that is governments at the local, state, and, and federal level are able to borrow at the same 0% interest rate that Wall Street was just given. And, and so uh, again, it is highlighting those inequities and highlighting those gaps in our system that need addressing. And I think that because it's so visceral for people right now, they're willing to listen. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's I think there's one thing missing in your in your in your down the road six to nine months from now, um, and that's the Democratic nominee being sworn in as president. So <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> let's make sure that that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, and it really has taken a toll on our democracy. I mean, we saw Wisconsin, um, you know, headed to the polls in the middle of this pandemic, and it was horrifying. And, yeah. and uh, so we need well, to and, you, and you've had and you've had the president and other Republicans come out and say, you know, if they have fair voting laws, they lose. So right. I mean, that's right. it, that sums right. it up right there. You know, yeah. they're going to fight it in the courts as much as they can. So exactly. It's highlighted uh, voter suppression. It's highlighted the lack of access to health care. It's highlighted um, the the lack of a UBI. It's I mean, this pandemic has really exposed all of our weak, weakest points in, yeah. in social safety net. And, and so we need to make sure that we come out of this critically thinking about how we can improve that. Yeah, and to paraphrase Abba Ibn, and I hope this is correct, um, that it'll actually happen is that you can always count on the American people to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other opportunity to fail. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so hopefully that hopefully we'll do that. Hopefully we'll come out stronger and better for this. And I'm glad that you're uh, at the forefront of this, Robin, trying to trying to get people's attention on the things that need to be atten paid attention to. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thanks, Robin. It's nice meeting you finally. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> All right. Cool. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling. My co-host, Amy Stevens, is taking a well-deserved break from media engagements this week. We want to thank Robin Wilt for taking the time to talk to us. Robin is running for the Democratic nomination to the 25th United States Congressional District. If you're interested in finding out more information about her and her platforms, go to wiltforcongress.com. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, a lot has changed since we recorded that episode, but it is still possible to speak out while staying in, as well as educating yourself on the issues of inequality. Here's some stuff you can do. Sign petitions. Go to change.org and look for causes, or just wait for one to pop up on your social media feed. Similarly, contact your elected officials, not just your congressperson and senator, although you can do that too, but also your mayor, your county executive, your district attorney, your chief of police. All of these people are politicians, and adding to the volume of messages they get calling for action will sway them. Read. 
There's a lot of books by black authors about racism and oppression. I'll recommend Ijoma Uloa's So You Want to Talk About Race and Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, for starters. Contact your local library. Talk to a librarian. Tell them you want books about inequality or racism or whatever you want to learn about. They will help you. Support minority-owned businesses, especially black-owned businesses. Extra especially black women-owned businesses. Super extra especially queer black-owned businesses. And if they're disabled too, just give them your bank account number and password. They'll need it more than you. Same thing with black artists and entertainers. If you see someone post something that speaks to you, I'm betting you'll find a Patreon or coffee page at the end of two or three clicks. Are you on social media? Follow black people on Twitter. Join racial justice groups on Facebook. Don't know of any? Just ask the activist people you friend or follow who they friend or follow and friend them or follow them. Follow women, follow queer people, follow people who don't look and think like you. Believe them, retweet them, share their posts, amplify their voices. Keep your comments to a minimum and don't ask them questions unless you're okay with either being ignored or being yelled at. I'm not saying they will do that, but it's entirely possible that you will ask what you think are perfectly innocuous questions that actually aren't. Or you may be the 6,000th white person who has asked them that question this week alone. You're there to learn from them, but they are not there to teach you. Want to learn? Remember what I said about reading in libraries? There you go. And as long as we're talking about what not to do, here's some more. Don't think you're an expert after one day, or week, or month, or year. Don't be saying, well, actually, to anyone. Don't take other people's words and use them as your own. Don't deny your privilege. Don't claim that you're not a racist or homophobic or transphobic or Islamophobic if a black person, a queer or a trans person, or a Muslim says or even hints that you are. If you're confused as to why they're saying this, ask them to explain what it was that you said or did that made them say this. Don't ask them why it was problematic or how to change it. There's a real good chance that they will at least give you a hint, if not outright tell you without asking, and it may not be said in the nicest of ways. Too bad. Take it. Consider it. If they don't tell you, do the work and find out for yourself. Figure it out and make amends. This is more or less off the top of my head. Do a search online for Black Lives Matter, go there, and you'll find a lot more resources than I can give you right now. That's it for this edition of Transformation Thursday. Be good to the people around you and to yourself. Peace.